Hello, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me today for the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. I'm really excited about my guest today. First, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. I'm also a managing director and partner at the Bonson Group, which is a wealth management firm in Newport Beach and New York City and various other locations throughout the United States. So let's get to this very important podcast. I think you guys are all going to really enjoy it because it is really relevant in my mind, very, very relevant. I'm having the pleasure today to interview Robin Tobe, and she is the author of The Wisest Investment, Teaching Your Kids to Be Responsible, Independent, and Money Smart for Life. And I say amen to that. So, Robin, without further ado, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad that you could take the time to be here. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm <laughs> going to jump right into this because first I'd like you to tell my audience a little bit about who you are and what you do because you certainly have the chops to write a book like this and the experience. So mm-hmm. let us know a little bit about who you are, what you've been doing throughout your life and how you got to the point of writing this book. For sure. So I am an accountant by training, a CPA, but I like to say that I'm not your typical accountant. Even though I did start out working for one of the big four accounting firms, I actually worked at two of them. I quickly left public accounting. It wasn't really for me. And I worked first for one of the clients of the firm I worked for in real estate syndication. And then after that, I left and I worked at Citibank on the trading floor in derivatives marketing. And around that period of my career, I had two kids. I have two kids. I have a son who's now 27 and a daughter who's now 25. So I am a mom. And because I'm a financial professional, I always felt comfortable and confident around money and financial concepts. And it was something that I felt was important for my kids to have. I feel it's a basic life skill. And I did make it a priority to teach my kids about money and to talk about it. And my husband also happens to be an accountant by training too. So this was something that was just, you know, openly discussed in our house. And there was also a conscious effort on my part to teach my kids. And I was also really interested in financial literacy as a result of the global financial crisis in 2008. And in Canada, and I am from Canada, by the way, from Toronto, there was a task force here because the government felt that financial literacy was important to Canadian economic growth and prosperity. And there started to be a lot of attention being paid to this. And it was defined as having the knowledge, skills, and confidence to make responsible financial decisions at every life stage. So having said all that, CPA Canada, which is the governing body of accountants in Canada, They wanted to do something based on their research, which showed that parents were really struggling with this. And their research showed that 78% of parents had tried to teach their kids about money, but two-thirds didn't feel they'd been very successful, and more than half didn't even know what information they needed. So they actually approached me and asked me to write a book to help parents with this. And so my first book, which was called A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids, came out in 2011. And I had never really thought I was going to write a book. It wasn't something, you know, that was on my bucket list, but unusually I'm good with numbers and with words. So I did it 
And I felt that I had the skills. I was doing some financial literacy content creation for the Securities Commission in Ontario. And I did research. I used my own experience, talked to lots of parents. We did focus groups. And the first book came out. Fast forward 11 years, and I felt the book really needed an update. First of all, we live in a digital world where cash is disappearing. So how do you teach your kids? And number two, we just went through this pandemic. Hopefully we are almost out of it. And a lot of things changed as a result of that too. So there were some trends that were emerging that really got accelerated because of the pandemic. And I just felt this is the perfect time. And so I updated it. I changed the title and the subtitle and, um, and here it is now and I'll just hold it up. Yeah, do hold it up, let us see. Yeah, that's the cover. So this is what you guys want to buy on Amazon, (laughs) The Wisest Investment by Robin Tobe. Okay, go out and get it and don't forget to review it. One thing I want to ask you just to back up Mm -hmm. a little bit with respect to your personal story. When you were a teenager, a young adult, did your parents talk to you about money? Did they lead by example? Did they have conversations with you? How did you learn to be involved with money and comfortable around it and then you chose to be an accountant so why'd you do that Uh, yeah no it's true those are my first two questions so we did like it wasn't off limits but we didn't talk a lot about it my parent I mean I'm like a very end of the gen x so I grew up in a time where our parents weren't like super involved with our lives. I mean, they didn't even really help me figure out what I wanted to do after high school or where I wanted to go to university. Like it was just kind of like figure it out for yourself. And I know that a lot of my, you know, my friends, my husband grew up very similarly, whereas I feel like parents are much more involved now. So it wasn't like off limits, but, but they didn't make a conscious effort to educate my brother and me. I have a younger brother, but my parents were educated. My father was a lawyer. My mother was a teacher. They were responsible human beings. So yes, I think they were good examples. I mean, they had, you know, their own issues with money. You know, they were born in the 30s. So in a lot of cases, you know, they had that, my father more so like more of a depression era mentality. Right. right. And, you know, their parents, three out of four of my grandparents were immigrants. So that really played into it. You know, they moved, they came here with nothing. They built wealth in one generation so that, you know, my parents were secure and could go to university and all that stuff. So I always felt like that really came out strongly. I felt very, I was just so impressed that they were able to do that. And that always had an impact on me. And I, I felt like that there's a great responsibility when it comes to, to wealth and, be, and, and building it and then looking after it. So and was your, did your brother take away the same yes. lessons that you did? So you're very similar. We are actually. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Like he's an engineer by training, but also did his accounting designation. So uh, yes, I think we are very similar. And I mean, you know, obviously everyone's individual, but we both are fairly responsible. We're good with money. We, you know, my brother was in private equity for a while, so we both kind of pursued it professionally. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think our parents did do a good job. Maybe it was more by osmosis than it was by instruction. Well, you know, leading by example, actions Mm -hmm. speak louder than words. I mean, if you're in a household where people are acting a certain way, now it doesn't always translate, but you know, there is some possibility of that happening. I would say one more thing. My my father was like more frugal maybe than he needed to be. Again, I think that came out of how he grew up. 
but they certainly weren't extravagant and they certainly weren't, you know, like living beyond their means or if anything, it was much, much below that. And so that's kind of internalized in me. I would say, I don't feel like, you know, I like to spend and buy nice things. I'm not saying that, but I'm not an extravagant person, I would say. Right. And I mean, look, as long as, you know, I mean, one of the things I write ad nauseum about and talk ad nauseum about is, you know, as long as you understand where these things fit within your budget, if you can afford it and you're not going into debt, if you want to do those things, that's fine. Uh, You just have to do a little planning. And as long as it's not, you know, pushing you over the edge and you still have your emergency savings and your 401ks and all that stuff. I just want to ask you a quick question just because I'm always interested in professional women and their experiences, a little bit off topic. But when you were at the public accounting firm, I mean, how did you feel there? Did you, what was it that you didn't like about it? And then you went to a trading floor, which also is a very kind of male, you know, dom- male dominated environment. Yeah. Just, a, just a little aside, as a woman professional, if you could just share with the audience, I think they'd really like to hear about your experiences with that. Yeah, because it wasn't great. <laughs> when I graduated from university in 1987, and I joined KPMG, I think there was in my group when I was in financial services, there was maybe like a couple of female partners, a handful of senior managers. And at my level, you know, the incoming cohorts, you know, and even in my class, it was probably 50, 50, like there was more women at the low levels, but they just disappear. That's that, you know, that cliff that we fall off the child rearing cliff. Yeah. I remember feeling like there were no visible role models, no one I could relate to who was a partner. I think the one partner in my group was divorced. Like it just, I just didn't really see myself staying there and lasting there as a career. I mean, no one treated me badly. I I think they, oh, I mean, all students or we were students, we hadn't qualified are treated badly. Don't get me wrong. You're, it's like, atrocious hours and all that. But I think equally the the men and the women in my class in my incoming year, I was only there for two years at one of these firms, were treated the same. But it was more that the work was really boring. We had to start out an audit. It was was just so boring. (laughs) Sounds horrible. Yeah. Long, long hours. And it was billable hours. And there was like busy season where you had like no life and people just accepted it. And interestingly, my daughter, who's 25 is also a CPA and she worked at the same firm. So this is like 25, you know, 32 years later or whatever. And she had a lot of the same experiences. And in some cases, I felt like it was even more, there was more of a bro culture for her now at this time in 2020, 2020s, than there was for me. So it was more about the work at the time, the reason I left and the trading floor I would say there was a lot more women on the trading floor than in senior roles at the accounting firm. So when I joined there, I'd say more, there was a lot more male traders and women were more on the marketing side, which is what I was on. So I was on the marketing of the derivatives, but it was a, it was a really cool environment. Like people were, were really smart. They were very like friendly, nice for the most part. Like it was serious place, but I didn't feel like, it, like a sense of sexism or any of that stuff. And it there. doesn't have that embedded bureaucracy of a partnership. 
Yeah. Um, I think, you know, because I work, I was a lawyer for many years and, you know, there's that embedded bureaucracy of the partnership. And it's really funny because my daughter is 31 and she is a lawyer at a big New York City law firm. And strangely, she is at the law firm that her father and I met at. And she is, you know, but I think in the law, I still think it's a problem for women to be partners because juggling, if they do want to be mothers, it's even, it's just difficult. I mean, so it's hard. a the hours. very, you know, uh, demanding, you know, profession in those big firms. Has there been progress? I don't know. I don't think there are that many more women partners than there were when I was doing it back in the 80s. So I don't know where, you know, what, I think there has been a little bit of a backward stepping kind of situation over the past 20 years for women. But thank you for sharing that because I think, you know, a lot of women who are listening to this would just be interested to see how you've evolved. And then you pivoted a couple of times in your career, which I think um, is very important for everyone to embrace as long as they've set up their personal finances in a way that allows them to do that. But I think it's okay to pivot. And sometimes it's the best way to self-realize. And maybe you have to put the hard work in at the beginning in some of these places just to get the the knowledge base or, you know, get, get some kind of, you know, basic knowledge and some gravitas on your resume. But after that, you know, fair game to go try to figure out a better way to live your life. You know, getting back to your book, I think that, first of all, I love that the Canadian government wanted to do this. I was doing a little research about what's going on in the United States, and only 50% of students, high school students in the United States, have access to personal finance, and that is as an elective. So they are not required to take it in any way, shape, or form except in four states, Florida, Nebraska, Ohio, and Rhode Island, they did pass legislation to make it part of graduating. But that leaves <laughs> many, many more states where nobody's really talking about it. And, and I don't understand why it's not as important as calculus, to be honest. Well, first of all, in, I just did a map of Canada for LinkedIn because I wanted to show people like what the different provinces, which is like a state, what they're doing when it comes to financial literacy, because education is at the, you know, at the provincial level and every province has courses and many of them are mandatory for graduation. In the U S we did some research as well. Your research sounds interesting. I'd like to see it. But what we found was I think only 23 states are teaching financial literacy. And and, no, that would be about right. Right. 50% have access. So that's about right. Yeah. And I didn't realize that so few made it a mandatory course, but here, like, I mean, for example, in Ontario, in the great, you have to take grade 10 careers and within grade 10 careers, you have to take a financial literacy module. And in British Columbia, same thing. They have planning 10, they've had it for many years and you, and it's, it's a compulsory course. So students are coming out with some, out of you know out of high school with some financial knowledge but many parents aren't aware it's being taught in school so that makes you wonder how well it's being taught if it's sticking what's going on and still most people think that parents and guardians have the most responsibility when it comes to teaching their kids about money so even though they're learning it in school 
you still have a really important role to play. It's kind of like sex education. Would you just think, okay, whatever my kids learn in school about that, that's enough. I don't need to talk to them about it. No, right? You're that's still scary, them. right? I mean, I don't know what the heck we learned back in the 70s. Uh, well, it was the 70s, so it was like anything went. Yeah. And my my mom and dad, you know, they were super Catholic, so they were just like, just not talking about it. Period. You're not allowed to do anything until you get married, and that obviously wasn't gonna <laughs> fly but we won't get into that topic but no but it is kind of like money and sex like I asked parents would you rather talk to your kids about sex or money because they're both sort of taboo but something that it's very important for I hope they say they would rather talk about I'd rather talk about money than sex yeah. but would people rather talk about sex than money wow well, maybe because you're a financial <laughs> professional like <laughs> it's funny because I was I've written in my book um and just for those of you that don't know, I have written a book called The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women, which you can get on Amazon or in a bookstore. But I quote in there that 47% of women associate the words dread, fear, all kinds of negative words with any type of financial planning or anything budgeting. to do with finances, budgeting, planning, investing. And you think to yourself, wow, you know, like, why are women having those terrible feelings about it? And we'll get into that. But I get it. Well, I'm, I think a lot of people just, they, you know, it's an easy topic to avoid. But okay, so you have in your book, you know, kind of these steps that people should take. And it sounds like in a perfect world, parents are going to be advising their kids about how to do this because they may not be getting it anywhere else. Certainly, if they live in the United States, they probably aren't. So how do you set the table? How do you raise awareness? I know you have the five pillars because some parents themselves are financially disorganized. And I, I mean, I, so I guess we have to raise awareness with people in general and just say, you need to get your act together because being financially disorganized is going to cause you stress and cause you health problems over your life. Right. But what, what kind of outreach or wake up call to parents do you suggest? Well, First of all, what you said to me earlier about my parents and in general, parents, they are role models for their kids in all different areas, but including money. So we are important financial role models because even if you're not talking about it, your kids are watching and listening and learning from you in the way you behave around money. So the first thing I tell parents is try to get your, your own financial house in order so that you can lead by example. And like you said, some people are disorganized. Some people don't have the knowledge, but it is something that you and your kids can learn together. So if you are feeling like, how can I teach my kids if I'm not doing a good job myself, this is something that you can learn along with your kids and you can start to develop better habits, better practices around money. And, and the first chapter of my book, I talk about these 11 healthy habits of financial management, just these guidelines to help you do that. So I mean, I think you also touched on, you know, there are serious consequences if we aren't financially literate. And A, it is a basic life skill that helps you look after yourself and your family and live the life you want. And after all, isn't that what we're all trying to do, right? Yeah, that's what you get up every day to do, yeah, right? right? So, and then it's, if you don't, then it can have serious consequences Physical health consequences, there's research that shows a connection to heart disease and high blood pressure and mental health challenges like depression yeah. and anxiety because money worries are the number one source of stress right now more than health and personal relationships and work. 
and also a very large cause of divorce and relationships breaking down. So it's it affects every aspect of our lives. And so when you were wrote the book and it was promoted, I don't know, did they put it in the schools there? How did you, you know, because I think it could be like a fun thing for parents and their kids to do together. Maybe you do it, you know, you you do like an offsite once, you know, once a month or you have a once a week get together over dinner or something fun to, to incorporate it. But how did you get people to like, wake up and do it? Okay. So there's, I feel like there's kind of two questions there. So with the parents and the kids, I mean, for the parents, I feel like I don't have the time. I try, I try to encourage them to look for these teachable moments that crop up in your everyday life to, to build in a little money lesson. I was just on a Zoom call earlier and somebody was telling me that they were at their local library and the library was selling off some of their used books and their three-year-old saw the, you know how when you, when you still use cash, there's those cash boxes, you know, those yeah. tills. And this three-year-old was like very interested in, in the cash box and like wanted to take it with them. <laughs> so again, <Right. laughs> you know, three seems a little young to learn about money, but like that is a good example of a teachable moment. And there are tons of them. I mean, you know, especially when you're transacting with your with your phone, you're tapping, you're using a debit card, a credit card. Kids don't know what those things are unless initially, unless you explain it to them. So looking for those teachable moments. So you don't have to set aside specific time. It will come up if you look for it. You can also play games like Monopoly or Life that, you know, yes, have yes, embedded yes. money lessons. So you're right. You could do like a retreat with other families where, I mean, I have some suggested activities in the book for family discussions, just some open-ended things like what does it mean to be rich or, you know, just like what are some of these healthy habits and, and you know, how can you make make them uh, stick in your lives. So there's just so many ways to talk about it. Also, I think you're touching on something really important here, which is it's not just the mechanical thing. Like you need to explain to your child that a credit card is going to have to get paid it later. And so those are the mechanical things, but also the value, the value systems. Right. And it seems like you've alluded to like, what, what does money mean to our family, to me? You know, what does it mean to be rich? I mean, I like, cause that's a very loaded question. Sure. Um, as someone who's in the wealth management field, that answer can be very answered so differently by so many different people. Uh, so I love the idea that you're introducing the idea of not only the mechanical aspects of, okay, you know, this is what happens if you use a credit card and you should learn how to budget and all that mm-hmm. stuff, but it's also the philosophical, what does money really mean and how do I derive my happiness from it? What part does that play in my happiness? Do you talk about that in depth at all? Are there any exercises or what suggestions do you have? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, I mean, I didn't really step up or step back and say this, but I I sort of have these three strategies. And one is to be a good role model. Two is to look for teachable moments. And then, of course, you just brought up the third, which is to use your values because they can act as an invisible framework or set of guiding principles to help prioritize financial decisions. And when you, you or your kids create goals that are tied back to your values and they become much more meaningful and compelling. So I did create an exercise in my book called the values validator. And it's a, it's a, it's an exercise to help you discover what your top values are. And again, you can use those to create smart goals. So if you go to my website, robintobe.com, 
it will pop up. So if anyone's curious, if you've never done a values exercise before, it's really interesting. I mean, you can tell a lot about a person's values by how they spend their time and money, but it's also cool to go through an actual exercise because you may be, there may be some that you're aware of or, or that you weren't aware of. I'm going to do it. I'm going to yeah. go on there and do it because yeah, I think it's it. really interesting. You know, I'm always interested to those tests, you know, because I think it's important. And you, your partner can do it too and see if you're on the same page, you know, and where your values overlap. What's it, you know, is your, is your number one, his number 20? Hopefully not. And I also, well, actually- but often, often it can be. And that's why before you do take the leap of whether living with somebody or any kind of partnership, you need to have these very transparent uh, money talks about yes, who you are, how values. you, but having a tool like this that can actually maybe help you express yourself about what, how you value money, I think is awesome. So everybody check it out, robintobe.com, the values validator. Yeah. It. And there's a companion tool called the role model self-assessment that will help you determine whether, you know, what kind of role model you are currently for your kids and what kind of role model you can be. And that one pops up on the wisestinvestment.com, which is the book website. So there's two, they're both free and they're both in the book as well. Fantastic. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things um, so that we can use our, you know, last kind of third of this thing sure. wisely, but you have your five pillars of money, about earn, save, spend, share, and invest. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. And then after we talk about that, I would also like you to then, we, I mean, we've touched around the fact that it's a digital world yeah. and cash is disappearing. So mm -hmm. there's nothing tangible. Like I know my dad, who is now about to be 93. Um, th this is a man who paid cash for everything. Right. He, I mean, he would literally have $100 bills. He was like a gangster, even though he yeah. was an accountant. Uh, oh. He did not believe in debt of any kind, right? And I understood what money was because if you go out to dinner and it was 50 bucks, 50 bucks, right? I saw it. It was yeah. gone. We spent it. When you put things on a credit card, you just don't know. And also, so, so there is a lot of, everything is digital. I am 100% sure that my 31-year-old daughter is the only person in our family who writes checks, my 28-year-old and 26-year-old, I don't even think they have a checkbook. So I wanted to discuss that a little bit. And then the other thing I want you to think about that I'd like to talk to after you discuss kind of the fundamentals of your five pillars and the digital aspect is where Finfluencers yeah. fit into this. Because I've, I've written a lot about what that is. And I know a lot of younger people now mm -hmm. get get... They get all their information from here, right? From their phone, from TikTok, from Instagram, from wherever. And a lot of it is really not very good advice. And it's not given by people who are qualified to give them, give them advice. So younger men might be buying meme stocks and things like that because they got money from COVID and they're 18. I don't know. But this is not a good idea. So I would like to know, okay. how, after you explain your fundamentals, how you yeah. leave that new force field into all of this. Ooh, okay. These are all really good. So let's start with the five pillars of money. So I wanted to help the parents, especially that felt like I don't even know what information I need. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to divide the book into these different ages. So there's four different ages, young kids, preteens, teenagers, and young adults. And then 
within each of those chapters, I'm going to talk about the five pillars of money, which are earn, save, spend, share, and invest. And I'm going to give specific examples and exercises and family discussions that are age appropriate. So, you know, what specific topics under each of those five will come up at that stage of your child's life? Because I want it to be really comprehensive and I want it to be very accessible and a book that families would come back and use over and over again. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. and I also thought- It's like a handbook, a roadmap. Yeah, a roadmap, exactly. And if also, I mean, the, the, the other idea was that ideally you start early and you build this foundation of the five pillars because there's something to teach at each at each age under each of the five and you just keep building on it you know and as they get older the specific topics and the examples will become a little more sophisticated but you're essentially creating this body of knowledge within your kids yeah i mean i love this idea now let me ask you another question i'm a little unfair you break it down into age groups, which I think is perfect because each age group is going to have a certain amount of ability to comprehend right. what you're talking about. So you got to approach it in a you know user-friendly way towards that age group. But what about the difference between boys and girls? Is yeah. there right. additional information that needs to be shared with girls? Because as we spoke before the podcast, historically, the narrative for girls and women, there hasn't been as much money talk in our lives right growing up. And also, I mean, women do, well, girls who are going to become women do have to, you know, confront certain issues that are not going on in male lives, like gender, you know, there's not parity in income, you know, that, you know, how to negotiate, how to intentional career choices. Those are a little bit off to the side of personal finance, but not really, because it's really how they're going to create wealth over time. So are there any nuances for girls that you have? Okay, so in the book, I did not in any way distinguish between sons and daughters. And in fact, that's how I treat it with my own kids. I you know, felt they both needed to learn this stuff. If anything, my daughter is the one that's more that is the financial professional now. As I mentioned, she's an accountant. My my son studied philosophy in university and is a musician and does stuff with sound engineering. So, but they both still know, need to know how to manage money because they, they both need to lead independent lives. So, but I am very interested in this topic of gender when it comes to financial literacy and there has been, you know, research into it and, One study that I came across from CPA Canada found that when you actually dig, I mean, because a lot of the, sorry, let me just back up and say that a lot of the research kind of shows that men do better on tests of financial knowledge and financial capability and and even the self-assessed, self-assessing like how knowledgeable they are. Men always score a bit higher. They think they're also better at it. Yeah. The confident overconfidence and stuff. So I was really curious about this. Um, and then they, they came out with this research that showed that, in fact, when you drill down into it, it's really more about your personality, your hardwired personality that determines, you know, that determines a lot of these outcomes on these tests about financial knowledge and skills and capabilities. So it wasn't so much whether you're male, male or female, it was more like your socioeconomic background and your hardwired personality. So people who are highly conscientious tend to be better money managers. So things like that. 
So I think a lot of the reason that we see that women aren't as confident and they're not scoring as high is these societal norms that, like you mentioned, go back to centuries, you know, centuries ago when women couldn't own property and they couldn't inherit. And they, you know, even recently they couldn't even get a credit card without their husband's signature. So a lot of it's just these societal norms that have told us like, you know, men look after that. You don't need to concern yourselves with it. But one good piece of news in this is though, according to a study by Fidelity, and then there was another one by Wells Fargo, when women do invest, they actually have better investment results than men do. Because once they actually get into it and start doing it, they don't like to market trade, they don't like to day trade, but they get consistently yes. higher results. Yes. Um, so I think if they can get that stigma out of there where they yeah. just like, you know, dive in and like it. But I was wondering too, like, as the girls get older and they're more in the high school bracket, in addition to personal finance, it might be, if you ever decide to write another book or update it, it might be interesting to talk to them about, it sounds like your daughter did this and my daughters have done it, but intentional career choices, yeah. learning how to negotiate, not letting their confidence undermine the fact that they're very competent, but women always expect to be 100% confident before they will even dip their toe in anything. And those kind of like, I know they're a little touchy feely, but they're really not because in the end, it's going to be their ultimate wealth creation vehicles yeah. that get them to, to being able to be good at personal finance because they'll have money to manage, you know? Yeah. I mean, you've brought up a lot of good things. Like you're right. Women tend to feel like they have to check off every box and have done everything right before they'll like put their hand up for a job or promotion or whereas men don't feel that way at all. You know, they, they think that they're entitled to it or, you know, that they, they have no problem putting themselves up for that kind of stuff. You know, I'd like to think maybe hopefully that I was a good role model for my daughter in that career, in this, that career sense that, you know, I was working at Citibank when she was really little. I've, you know, I've been on my own doing this financial literacy content creation for a long time now. And she was always good with math and very practical person. And again, I think her personality is really well suited to this. And my son, you know, we did think it was important. So he took accounting and he took a lot of investing courses and stuff. So he does know this stuff. He, it's just not what he's passionate about and what he wants to do for a living. But right. I think right. Right. it's like, fair enough. And not everybody yeah. wants to be an accountant, you know. Yeah, ex no. Thank God. <laughs> but um, I think for, I think it's really wonderful to see that, like for her and her generation, that a lot of these, a lot of gr young women are going into these more traditional male-dominated professions. You know, she was working in a, another accounting firm where she was in mergers and acquisitions. She actually just moved to a job at, at one of the big banks in Canada. So, and just feeling that she, like, she feels like she has the confidence. She can hang in there with the boys. She really is very, like, smart and savvy with her career navigation and, and everything. So I think it just, maybe, you know, generation by generation, we'll keep setting good examples for our kids and, you know, we'll continue to see even more progress. But I think what you said, we do face barriers as women that men will never face. There is a gender pay gap. We do take more career breaks to have kids, sometimes to look after elderly family members, and we live longer. Yes. So we yeah. have these challenges yeah. that are reality, and we have to, like, plan for them and manage our finances for them. So I want to ask you the kind of, uh, as we kind of get to the end of this, what do you think is the most important piece of advice that you can give to parents that are about to 
that they're going to go buy your book and they're going to, they've got kids of various ages. What's the most important thing they can do to, to get this through to kids and make it fun? Like what is just to make it fun or what's your advice? Like, how do you get the ball rolling here? Yeah, with young kids, you want to make it fun for sure. And again, engaging and age appropriate. But once they're a little bit older, they can probably start to see the stakes for themselves. You know, if they're teenagers and they're working and they know how hard they have to work for minimum wage and they know how easy it is to spend, I think they start to connect those dots. And, you know, if they're planning to go on to university or college and they are involved in planning for that, again, the stakes are pretty high to plan properly and plan wisely. And do you believe that, um, because I read the little, uh, you had like a little example at the beginning of your book about the girl Mm -hmm. moved across the street or something who, Mm -hmm. you know, was going to Starbucks and, you know, going to Mexico and she shouldn't really living in the moment, YOLOing. But, but I don't know who was paying for all that, but are you a proponent of children of various ages earning their own money and having to save up for things? Do you think that's a useful a lesson for them? Do. Or do you think that's draconian? No, I, I mean, obviously age appropriate, but I do think that having a work ethic is really important. And I also feel that, you know, nothing, again, nothing teaches kids like the value. It's like the, the old cliche, the value of a dollar, like putting in a hard day's work. It's very easy for them to spend your money. It doesn't count. It never counts in the same way. But when they have to use their own money, they do think longer and harder about whether they really want something, you know, whether they need it, if it's the need or want. So I do think that it's important for kids to experience that. I mean, you can still give your kids an allowance and allow them to make those choices around money about saving and spending and sharing and investing. But once they're old enough to work and maybe even if it's just babysitting for a preteen, I think it's it's when, you know, things really kick in. And I'm not saying parents shouldn't be generous and I'm not saying they shouldn't, you know, help their kids buy things, but there's ways to do it that are constructive. And the other thing is you want to teach them to delay gratification. Right. And that's very important. Right. And I hold my hand up. I mean, I think I made some mistakes along the way. We all do. Uh, Me certainly. Too. And when I became a single mom, I think at that point I was trying to make up for some of the other stuff that went on. So, right. you know, I was most definitely over generous, probably at my own financial health. Cost. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. I did what I did. But I, I guess I want to say to everyone, like, parents, you can't be lazy. It's, you know, it's easy not to like talk about this stuff. And I'm busy, right? I'm busy doing my job. I'm busy running the house. I got no time for this stuff. But really, it's so important. It's more important than, you know, making sure that your kids in every lesson known demand, you got to take time out for this. And I think that your message, I, I don't really know of that many books that are out there that focus on this particular yeah, topic. Yeah, there aren't that many. But to make it fun, like I've just been thinking about that since you asked, and I said it earlier, if there are games you can play. Like life is fun. It is a fun game and all yeah. fun. Lots of families love it. So just, you can use that as an inroad to talking about some of these other topics, these other five pillars. I mean, not everything is fun, unfortunately. Like, you know, we, as you get older, you have responsibilities. And, but I think for younger kids, there are ways to make it fun. And I know, I'm sure there's lots of like, you know, there's games, they've gamified a lot of this. There are some great fin, fintech apps, 
for families to use to help manage allowance and chores. And a lot of those have educational components with that are gamified. So, you know, and what, so, and what advice do you have for the teenagers? Oh yeah. Who are using it. Yeah. What are you, that. What, and that'll be our last thing. And what, what is your advice about these, uh, because someone asked me, are you a Finfluencer? Investment News asked me that. And I said, well, I think I'm too old to be a Finfluencer, but I know, and I'm also knowledgeable. This is what I do. For You're an expert. And, You're a real expert. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That. I'm an expert and I'm going to tell you what I think. And if you want to follow my advice, you can. If not, you can turn it, the channel. But um, I, I just know. think there are so many people out there that young people are listening to because they're cool and they're hip. And I just did a podcast on... Uh, the crypto world and women in community and how they've... I, yes, I just listened to it. Yeah, I think they've kind of dumbed it down a little bit. I know. I worry that, say, you've got, you know, a gal or a guy who's 18, they're listening to all this stuff, they go on Robin Hood or whatever, and they're like, you know what, I got a couple hundred bucks, I'm going to put it in, you know, a meme stock that everyone's talking about, or I'm going to buy crypto because Elon Musk said today... I'm going yeah, to you know, tweet it something buy Dogecoin, whatever yeah. comes out of their various mouths of people. I, you know, how do we, without being a downer, how do right. we get our kids to know that this may not be, you know, the fountain of all legitimate information? I mean, they probably, I mean, they're, they're on social media. They, they must know from other topics that there's a lot of misinformation out there, bad information, you know, not just about personal finance, but about other stuff that they care about. And there's rumors and there's just complete gossip. So hopefully they have that kind of media literacy to know that you can't trust everything that you read or see or hear. I, I, I think these influencers have a role to play, like, you know, especially engagement wise, because they do find a way right. to they are really engaging. engaging. Right. So at least that's raising awareness. I mean, this cash stuffing thing was a really big thing here where they like, the, that was big on TikTok where people were basically using clear folders to like budget, like the old jar method. And that was big viral thing. Um, I like that idea. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways to, and that's kind of making it fun and tangible again, money. But I think you do want to assess where the information is coming from. How credible are they? You know, not everyone has to have credentials to be able to give advice. But again, I think if it's like about really simple stuff, like saving or budgeting, it's one thing. Once you're talking about investing, there's a whole other level of sophistication, complexity, and I think I would want to be getting that advice from somebody who has some credentials and some experience and not just some celebrity. Like you said in that episode of the podcast, like these celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow, like do you really think she's done her homework on cryptocurrency yeah. <laughs> or do you think she just has a lot of followers, right? And, she, and, they, and they also gave her some crypto for free. And right. also if they didn't, she, so she has enough have net worth. She, she can afford it, to lose it, right? No brainer. So, yeah. But I think, I, I mean, I think what you've incorporated, which is the most important lesson in what you've written and your approach is that there's no easy get rich quick scheme, you no. know, just manage your money the right way. doesn't matter how much you make, you can still save and prosper. And I think if right. we embed that in our children, that will be enough armor for them to have on to protect them if they hear somebody saying something crazy, like, you know, if you invest in this, you're going to be rich tomorrow. There are a lot of smart people that are in the crypto world who are, you know, major people in the financial world that have gone down this garden path um, and are trying to understand where they're at right now. But I think fundamentally what I'm, I've gotten from looking at what you've written is that, you know, you're doing it 
the not the old-fashioned way, but the sensible way, which is, you know, teach your kids by example. Here are some tools that you can use to do it. And if you follow these things, you will be financially organized and solid. And I think that's, you have to put the work in, you have to read the book, you have to do it with your kids, and you're not allowed to say other stuff is more important because down the road is something, if your kids are all over the place financially, it will totally affect your life. Well, that's and if you have it. to support them in your retirement, you're not going to be too happy about that. You're going to wish that you oh, had yeah. read Robin's book <laughs> and actually acted on it because now you're trying to support your kid who's not doing anything with their life that they should be. Um, and yeah, and also, like you said, don't forget. So it's the tactical stuff, but it's also like the values piece, the you know, what's really important to me, like always go back to that because they are your guiding principles when you're faced with financial decisions or dilemmas. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I think what you've, your your book, I think is so important, evergreen. It's going to be important for the rest of time. I would encourage everyone and we'll, we'll have this in the show notes uh, to buy the wisest investment by Robin Tobe. Also, I would encourage everyone to do the values validator mm-hmm. and the role model self-assessment. I think these things are really clever and important. And if you write another book, <laughs> give me a shout out. <laughs> the, the next version of this is things keep, you know, evolving at the speed of light. Right. And I really, I've enjoyed this. So everybody, please, um, if you like the podcast today, please give it a five-star rating and thank you for listening. And until next time. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake up call for women, to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.